Welcome to another episode of Maximus Men Striving for Greatness. My name is Chris De Silva from the Life, Marriage and Family Office in the Archdiocese of Sydney. And this week I'm joined by Luke McCormack of the National Civic Council here to talk to us about how to build a just society. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be with you. Fantastic. And this is a really providential episode to have after our previous episode, which was an interview with Kevin Connolly, who's the Liberal member for Riverston in the New South Wales State Parliament. So he gave us a really practical rundown on getting involved in a party, getting politically active that way. So today we're going to zoom out a little bit more into the broader picture of how to build a just society and what that means, especially from a Catholic perspective and how we as men should be taking the initiative for doing that. Luke, um, I'm going to begin with a prayer, if you'd like to join me. Indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that we can come together once again as men, uh, virtually, pray for all the men watching this on Facebook or YouTube, and all the men listening to this on podcast. Inspire in us the desire to help our society become more just. Give us a heart for spreading your kingdom, for providing remedy through your grace for so many of the societal ills that we see around us in the culture of death um, and in policies that would drive families apart, that would stop men from from being who you call us to be and fulfilling our vocations as husbands or fathers or single men, wherever we are in our lives. Um, inspire us to, to become the men that we're called to be, to build your kingdom here on earth. And we pray for St. Joseph's intercession at this time as well. St. Joseph the worker, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Chris. No worries at all, Luke. So we always begin with a bit of background from our guests. We want people to know who you are and how you got particularly engaged in the area where you are right now. But we'd like to start with, with your faith. So first of all, tell us a bit about your family background and then how you also moved into embracing the Catholic faith as a man. Well, um, I was born the year Star Wars came out. <laughs> that makes it 1977. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the internet became a thing when I was in roughly year 10. Sure. Um, I got friends, I remember. I've got these memories of being roughly 12 years age. And, you know, the Commodore 64 was a computer console. And it had to be loaded by a cassette. Um, yeah, so uh, it's interesting to live through that time. My dad was from country Victoria. Okay. He grew up in a pub, so his father ran the pub. Uh, he ended up working mainly as an auditor for the Defence Force. My mother grew up in country New South Wales, just over the border. And both of them had the faith. Um, in particular, Dad would share it a fair bit. Dad loved the outdoors, so my childhood was uh, shooting, fishing, the outdoors, jogging, cycling. Um, but uh, look, part of, part of that enjoyment was the living right near the Yarra River, so near Eltham and Ringwood. Victoria, beautiful place to grow up. I ended up uh, marrying an inner city girl, and we've got five children now, with one more on the way. That's right, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's getting pretty busy. Yeah, it's getting pretty full, I imagine. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, um, I think the, the plumber who recently visited said, What are you doing, mate? <laughs> reference to six children I said oh I know it's a bit out of control it seems but I love it you know <laughs> so uh, 
Yeah, look, before we got married, we did some mission work. So we both spent one year on a voluntary mission team called the Net Teams, similar teams in New South Wales and different from different dioceses or whatnot. But yeah, it's a year of a mission. That was great, really formative. Um, yeah, I'm the sort of person, if you had a few spare hours on the weekend, you'd catch me mountain biking or perhaps gardening, spending time with the kids, maybe going for a jog, that sort of thing. Salt of the earth. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm a student again, so I'm doing a course in philanthropy and not-for-profit studies. So Fantastic. I do a bit of work now in management and fundraising, so I've got to sort of brush up the skills there. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And how did you come to know Jesus personally in your life that set you on the track where you are right now? Good question. Good question. Um, look, when I look back, I see um, there's one foundational experience, although there were other sort of moments, I guess. But when I was in year eight, an interesting thing happened. I where we lived, you had to walk down to a bus stop to get to the bus and get to school. And then there was a 15 minute walk after that. Anyway, so I'm walking down with my siblings to the bus stop and we're waiting for the bus. And some people would be familiar with this. When the bus rolls up, you know, everyone converges for the door, um, except my sister seemed to fall. Uh, right in front of me, sort of flat on her face. And what I didn't know at the time was she was actually having an epileptic seizure. Oh, wow. It was the first time she'd ever had one. But as a young year eight boy, I panicked because I thought she'd had brain damage. She'd hit her head or something. Yeah. So when the ambulance turned up, because it was a pretty decent seizure and she had to be taken to hospital, and my parents went with the ambulance, they asked me, can you go back home because your younger brother's still at home and just explain to him what's happened. Mm. Well, I walked home a mess, you know, I was really upset and crying. And yeah. I, I couldn't work out what to do, what to think. Um, but I did remember what a priest had said at a mass that week or just a few weeks back. And that was, you know, when the burdens seem too big and you can't quite handle them, ask God to help you. And I remembered that. So I said a little prayer on my way home. Um, this is, I'm really confused and really worried about my sister and I can't be calm in front of my brother. I'm a real mess. Please help. But I only got halfway through this prayer and I immediately, like literally instantly went calm. Mm. My eyes dried up and I was able to walk home really calmly and support my brother. And I knew from that moment that God listens to your prayers and he can act and he can actually sort of rescue you when you're in a difficult situation and trust me chris i i've need, I needed that experience for the next 10 years of my life which was a bit up and down right. and a bit difficult yeah that's beautiful the simple but profound advice from the priest there fantastic so now you are working for an organization that really is about building a just society um, from a Catholic lens, or at least from a Catholic philosophical point of view. Um, how do you go from being passionate about God to, I want to make the whole society just and, and do whatever I can to make that happen? Good question. Um, I'll look to sum it up. Um, it's my experience of how much God loves that developed my passion for getting involved in politics. Mm. And so this experience of God's love, which is backed up in scripture about how much he loves us and in church teaching, it's, that it's a profound love. It's pervasive. It's intense. And realising God even cares about the details, you know, like he's nothing's too small or insignificant for him. And so that experience led me to sort of, I guess, automatically want to start caring about other things. 
But I have to admit that it took a while for that to grow. So I spent a fair bit of time just immersed in learning about God and how to live a Christian life and how to get over old habits, sinful habits, worldly habits, what selfish ways of thinking. Um, so I'd say maybe seven years into that journey as an adult, this sort of passion for justice started to emerge. And I'd like to now just thank people who are already working in that before me, just the way they influenced me. And I think the first one, Chris, and I think knowing a little bit about you, Chris, you'd relate to this one, and that is that the pro-life cause was like one of the first things that really got me in the heart. Yeah, same. And, uh, yeah, made me realise we've got to do something and, and men need to pull up their socks a bit. You know? Right. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that and the context, of course, is I've grown up, you know, through the 80s, 90s, noughties in Australia. I've seen a lot of change. I've seen the explosion of pornography as a problem. We've mm. um, seen the triumph of the radical feminist movement in Australia pass a lot of laws that are sort of anti-marriage and effectively sort of anti-family, anti-life. Um, so it's been a wild ride. We've seen the redefinition of marriage. I was involved a lot in that campaign. <laughs> I think I'm still trying to get over it. You know, it was difficult to lose that when you understand how much it actually means. So, um, yeah, I think to answer your question in summary, it would be love. <laughs> mm. I'm not a political animal, Chris. No, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so with the National Civic Council, tell us a bit about what you do, what, what your role actually entails, but then perhaps start off by giving us a bit of a history um, and about Bob Santa Maria himself and how he created what is now the National Civic Council. Yeah, sure. So, um, so the NCC has been around for a while and um, I only discovered this uh, about 15 years ago. And uh, its founder, Bob Santa Maria, passed away in 1998. But the organisation, under its original name, started back in 1941. So we're really going back. And our parents' generation, um, for anyone listening in that generation, you'd probably heard the name Santa Maria or the NCC. You might have seen Santa Maria on point of view. But if you're roughly maybe 45 or below, you might not have heard about it at all. To sum it up, it's um, action in, in politics or society by Catholics. Um, though it originally was under the direction of the bishops until the 1960s. So before that time, it was called Catholic Social Studies Movement or the Movement for short. And in the 60s had a name change to the National Civic Council. Pardon me. The, um, but its, its main agenda is to sort of analyse issues through the lens of Catholic social teaching and to just help ordinary people get active. So the very first thing that the NCC was involved with was responding to the rise through the 30s and 40s of the Communist Party of Australia through the trade unions. And the tactic to sort of push back on this communist threat at the time was pretty simple. It was to do what they were doing, and that is turn up to meetings. <laughs> so in politics or in political parties, and the National Civic Council is not a political party, um, it really, the destiny, if you like, is held by those who turn up to meetings. <laughs> so you've got to participate and turn up. And by encouraging blue-collar workers, you know, like just your ordinary, everyday Catholic parishioner who was involved in a trade, therefore a trade union, most likely. And keep in mind, back then, the Labor Party was really a pretty good party. It was sort of the Catholic party, right? Um, they uh, were encouraged to, you know, carpool, to get to a meeting, to vote for a moderate 
candidate for their union elections. But this took a lot of organisation. And in the end, after probably, say, 15 years of attempts organising, uh, the moderates managed to you know, throw out, if you like, or defeat the communists from those trade unions. And for those who are not aware that if you control trade unions, you end up eventually you know, being able to control the Labor Party because it's connected to the unions in its structure, quite unlike other political parties. But that was way back then. And uh, now, um, or since then, the NCC's fought lots of other things. I've got a little list here. Um, yeah, so we've dealt with the emerging sexual exploitation industry, which started you know, decades ago, has gotten worse. Um, the radical feminist movement's been like a, one of the battles we've fought. But then there's a big area not many people are as interested in, and that is in farmers, in agriculture, in quarantine that we've had lots of fights with, fair trade as opposed to free trade. Um, dealing with radical environmentalism or energy policy, um, the abortion industry, we deal with that. Um, marriage itself and pro-family policies that help strengthen marriages, we get involved with. And I guess a more recent one that's emerged is the uh, redefinition of what sex actually means. So the sort of transgender ideology, not, not someone who's got gender dysphoria, but the movement to actually replace uh, the biological definitions of sex in law with um, fuzzy grey uh, based gender identity theory. So yeah, it's pretty broad, the sort of things we do. Now I've been involved with quite a few campaigns right now. Chris, I'm, again, fun, some fundraising management and overseeing, um, I guess, some of the next generation emerge and do their thing. Um, but I find it very intellectually satisfying, challenging. Um, yeah, at, at times I cry. <laughs> I remember 2008, the Abortion Law Reform Act got through the Victorian Parliament. And at one point I was riding my push bike home uh, in Melbourne there and um, just felt the, the weight of the, um, and the sadness of some of these issues, including lost life of the unborn, just weigh on me, just, you know, find myself weeping. So. It's not like uh, the sort of job or the work where you, you know, uh, you want to feel good all the time, <laughs> um, but you do need support and you do need a team and you need your brothers and you need the church in, in my experiences <laughs> that you need church, you know, and yeah. yeah, it's, but you meet some amazing people in this line of work. For sure. Well, I think that's really beautiful to hear. I think it's good and helpful for, for men to hear that, somebody who's involved in political lobbying from a whole number of facets that your heart's so connected to it. I think sometimes we see these personalities uh, on the internet, on the news, on TV, and it just seems like they're, they're all in their head sort of thing and that the heart's, you know, just being buried underneath them getting the job done or following their orders or pushing their own agenda. But it is still possible to get involved there and put your heart into it and i think we, we really need that don't we we need guys who, who genuinely want to stand up for the truth and that means you bring your whole self to to the job yes yeah and so people might look at what you've just said there and and also say that you know the ncc is spreading itself pretty thin with all the different mm -hmm. issues that you're touching on but i think what it's important to hit out there is that all of these things touch on Catholic social teaching and the way that the Catholic Church or that the gospel would would teach us to see the world. And that's sort of why you're looking at all these issues, right? Yes, spot on. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think so that what, what, I'm, what I'm leading to here is that I think many men in the church don't understand Catholic social teaching, what it really means. Um, a lot of them have heard a watered-down version of 
you know, it's just social justice. It's just standing up for this cause or that cause. Um, can you paint us a holistic picture of what Catholic social teaching is and how it's, you know, directly connected to what we see in the Gospels? Thanks, Chris. Yeah. And I think you're right. That is why, yeah, that the National Super Council's agenda is pretty broad because the church's wisdom on how a just society is guided or um, created is broad. Um, but admittedly, not many other countries have an organisation quite like the NCC. It's pretty rare. Um, so, yeah, social teachings of the Catholic Church, um, uh, traditionally just called Christian social teachings, but of course, at some point, you have to differentiate that they've come from the Catholic tradition. So sometimes they get called Catholic social teachings. Um, they're effectively a, a group of encyclical letters, usually from various popes over time, starting with um, uh, going back to 1891, um, it was called Rerum Novarum, or in English, on the condition of labour. And this is Leo the Thirteenth, and um, it was effectively addressing the issue of industrialisation and the sort of exploitation of workers that could result from having to um, work under tough conditions, not necessarily any union to represent you or to bargain for a better wage. And, a whole lot of issues developed from that. But um, yeah, in general, the, I mean, the good news here is that the church offers a whole lot of wisdom that most people haven't read. And if pastors, priests, religious leaders, teachers um, start reading into this and getting their head around it, as well as what's in the newspapers, um, that with the gospel message of salvation is very potent and you can really speak into people's lives if you sort of grasp these concepts. And I think the first thing people will notice is that the church is neither left nor right. <laughs> and I'm sure you appreciate, Chris, the, how limited language can be and um, yes. you know, the, yeah, terms like left and right can be problematic. Um, so what am I saying? In essence, the, uh, when you get to know Catholic social teachings, you'll tend to look a little bit maybe on the left on economic issues, perhaps, you know, <laughs> on the issues around life. You probably get called these days a far right winger for believing that yeah, un radical. an unborn <laughs> child deserves not to be killed. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, look, uh, I've got, there's a list um, here I've got. I won't read the whole thing, but you've got the next encyclical after on con the condition of labour in 1891 was 40 years later, and they simply called it, you know, 40 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Which sort of backed up what the first one said, but developed it a little bit. Yeah. So these encyclicals, they um, call for things like unions, participation in a union, as opposed to state control to deal with labour issues around just working conditions or, or uh, wages. So it's really quite considered and thoughtful. And um, then you've got Christianity and Social Progress, John the 23rd, who also wrote Peace on Earth. And that sort of deals with um, that you've got some very rich countries and some really poor countries, and there's a bit of a responsibility there to show some assistance for developing countries to um, get somewhere. But um, and as you know, there's sort of foundational principles under this, but you've got a Vatican II document, Guadam at Spes, or the Church in the Modern World. Um, JP II made a big contribution on this area, about five, I think, in total. And um, the Gospel of Life is probably the one I'd recommend your viewers or listeners to read if they have never read it. And that came out in 1995. Then Benedict added Charity and Truth, um, which deals with quite a few things. Um, and then even Pope Francis has added Care for Our Common Home or Praise to You, Lord, Care for Our Common Home, which is really good. Um, and for someone who, by the way, loves science and um, 
there's just a few issues about that encyclical that irritate me just just a tiny bit. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's not the topic of this particular podcast. Yeah, a topic for another day. <laughs> um, yeah. But you you've touched on the pro-life issue there, and I want to just take you up on that for a little bit. Um, I I can definitely second that. Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, is a fantastic document to really understand why, as Catholics, we're so passionate about the dignity of the human person from the moment of conception until natural death. Um, in the political sphere today, as men, we're sort of intimidated away from getting involved, at least at the forefront of the pro-life issue, because, you know, you're a man. What, what do you have to say about this issue? You don't understand what it's like to go through unplanned or um, crisis pregnancies. So why is it so important for men to stand up in the pro-life movement? Good question. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really important because men provide outside support and protection. So think of this, you know, like the now, even if a woman's had children, pregnancy is a super vulnerable time for a woman, whether the baby's wanted or unwanted, whether she's healthy or not healthy, married or not married, um, financially secure or not financially secure, it is a vulnerable time. So if you add some difficult more factors to it, um, well, it's like it's super edgy right, for the woman. Now, man, I mean, you could be just a friend or an uncle or, you know, um, an old school friend, and you can actually support a woman in a crisis pregnancy. So, Chris, I, my, my proposition is that if men were to let the women in their life know that if they ever had an unwanted pregnancy, they would support them with the pregnancy and the birth and assist them in those difficult times of having a newborn, either through you know, organising something, material support, anything, that would make a huge difference in a lot of women's lives. Yeah. And um, men are uniquely positioned to, you know, like be a bit more involved in providing materials or getting something organised or, or possibly protecting the woman from other factors or forces that are a bit toxic yeah so it's a game changer isn't it once you once you change men's attitude in terms of taking responsibility yes. it absolutely changes the entire debate around around the topic of abortion and i think that's why men's ministry is so important as well if we have a, a space that we can invite men into who haven't had a good father figure or a good role model and they need somebody who they can trust, who they can lean on, who they can just, you know, have a beer with, but who will also just encourage them a little bit. Hey, you do have the ability to be able to take responsibility. Um, then that's going to have a ripple effect onto how he treats the women in his life. Exactly. Mm. And, um, wow. Look, well, I don't know about you, Chris, but when I was, um, you know, 18 to 24 or, or something god you know you feel pretty helpless and not quite sure perhaps yeah uh, that's that was my experience of exactly what to do in those situations um, yeah. but um well if we can you know uh, our, older men can drum it into younger men that are their yeah. role of support and uh, that would really help um yeah look i imagine imagine a day where Every time a girl, and I, I mean a girl, like as in when, you know, she's young and she's a child and she's a young preteen and a teen and she's been driven around or whatever by her parents through the suburbs of Sydney. Mm. And every time they see a church, she sees a church, she has this feeling, oh, that's a place I know where you get help. And you get help if you're having a baby. Mm. and even you know you get help if you've ever had an abortion yeah so it's seen as some sanctuary where forgiveness and healing and assistance takes place and that would be a culture we need you know to get somewhere in australia and um, 
I think there's a way parishes could do it. Yeah. Mm. That's a beautiful example. I think that's something we should definitely be striving for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Luke, other than the pro-life issue, there's been others that, that you have already mentioned where our side has been losing in the past few years. Um, the marriage issue, um, some different economic things even going back as well that have sort of driven the family apart a lot. How do you deal with being involved in these campaigns continually and perhaps, you know, there's a small victory here and there, but it seems like our vision of a just society has been becoming further and further away, moving further and further away from what the reality that we're living in actually is. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with it and what motivates you to keep fighting to turn this ship around? Well, that's another good question. <laughs> um, I, don't, I must admit, I, I don't find it easy, um, you know, in this patch of life. Yeah. You, can, you know, life can change and have stages. And um, I found that um, a lot of men and women have a lot of energy through the 20s and the 30s, and then things can change a bit. So I have hit the 40s. Um, but I'm encouraged by scripture to you know never tire of doing good yeah and that it's honorable to defend the truth and show charity even when you're losing even if you're being crucified like there's still a, a win in it um and that we know like i know rationally logically we, we all should know that whoever's got the numbers and whoever sort of dominates the culture is the sort of politics you get and so fights that we lost 30 years ago are now uh, manifest in our parliaments, maybe 40 years ago. Yep. And so a couple of things, strategies I've got, one of them is continually finding some way to pass on the faith. And in this context, the care for your neighbour to the next generation. And, um, and that sort of sums up the whole of the political enterprise if you like from a catholic point of view and that is it's the second commandment to love your neighbor so it's very close to the first <laughs> to care for your neighbor it's not quite it's not the first but it's closely attached to it um other things are that you don't know who's watching you don't know who's you're witnessing to and i i think i'm aware that you had stephen lawrence on recently on your program yes and uh look i really enjoyed hearing his story he told at the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference yeah, uh, the men's gathering. Yeah. I think it was called, um, in fact, I'm only halfway through it myself. Uh, okay. Was it Brothers, What Shall We Do? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So Stephen shared that story of doing something courageous when he was a footballer. Yes. With regards to uh, inappropriate videos you know, of women. And he had no idea that years and years later, he had another colleague, another footballer from back then, who had been telling that courageous story of what he did without his knowledge to school students, you know. That's right. Um, so that gives me courage as well. And look, the other thing is that um, history shows that ideologies that are nasty, uh, they do have a big impact, but it really, they do come and go. And it really is up to us to uh, warn people, do our best, fight back, you know, um, provide something good for people to hold on to, knowing that the battle's not completely ours personally to own a battle. It's a, it's a group effort. So you do need a team approach. Yeah, yeah and realise it could take generations, you know, see it, see it as building blocks, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm looking at my own children now, Chris, and I'm thinking, yeah. you guys can finish that job off for me. Thanks, kids. <laughs> That's right. That's the beauty of having a big family as well. Yeah. Um, Luke, a lot of men who are watching or listening to this 
we'll be aware of the social issues that we're talking about now. Um, but I feel like talking to, to Catholic men, just Catholics out there, not everyone's so aware of some of the way that the ways that the economy has changed, economic policies have changed over the past, you know, say 50 years, and how those changes have actually led to some of the social issues that we're now dealing with today. Um, maybe you could give us some examples of what's happened uh, to the economy and how that may have led to more of a culture of debt. And then looking at where we are now, what are some things that we can do to the, like hypothetically we could do if we had the right numbers, you know, in, in our parliaments economically that would help things change in a positive direction socially? Yeah, okay. Well, that question looked like it was designed for me, Chris. That was a good one. <laughs> oh, look. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, well, what I've learnt is that um, with regard to the way the economy moves and works, um, you're forever really in a particular environment of regulation. Now, um, what, so think of the frog being slowly boiled in the pot. That's, that's one analogy we could use for if things are going wrong in your economy, it's hard to notice sometimes, yep. but you're in an environment. But um, just to take it objectively, like you're always in an environment of some kind, and the first environment is political, in that you're in a certain country, and you're governed by certain rules, um, so it's good to keep in mind we're in Australia, your vote doesn't leave these borders, you know, you can only control what we do here. And that trade and everything you're doing business um, has to be abide by certain rules or at least you can get caught out if you were to breach certain rules. Now some people um, would advocate that we should just sort of have no rules or a lot less regulation. Mm. Um, that could be true at times, but in the end, um, because I guess from a Catholic point of view, because of original sin, you need regulation to deal with issues of greed, uh, fraud, um, deception, theft. I mean, you know, no one, not many people would argue against intellectual property law. Um, so there's sort of all these factors, right? And we went from a um, sort of prior to the 70s, a fairly um, mixed economy model where the government gets involved in trying to assist or pre give preference to industries in Australia. So um, partly given that we're pretty small with only, what, 26 million population. Mm. If you open up your trading rules to the whole world, or even to certain sections like North America or Asia or Europe, you are playing David versus Goliath, right? You're, the size is a factor. <laughs> so what we had in the 70s and then emerging in the 80s was a trend towards liberalising rules. Yep. And oddly enough, the Labor leaders at the time, Hawke and Keating, started it off. And that was to take a liberal approach where you allow less and less trade rules, which is sort of like taking your levers of power away and in telling your Australian industries and businesses that they'll be fine, they just have to compete with the rest of the world and toughen up and get more efficient, etc. Now, because of some of Australia's uniqueness, some businesses, some industries did pretty well in this situation. I'll give Australian beef as one example at least, and the fact we've got plenty of minerals. Um, but largely we've lost, and there's economists that have examined this and compared it, but we've largely lost out because we simply can't compete. Um, and so what I'm, I guess I'm not just ranting about trade concepts here, and I'm not no economist myself, but you do learn a lot over you know, 12 years. 
um, these are all connected to family. Yeah. Right? So the sister organisation that I work with, the Family Association, they commissioned a study with Bob Beryl from Monash University and it proved what we sort of knew must be true. And that was a young Aussie bloke is far more inclined to say, will you marry me to a girl if he's got a steady job that pays okay? And if he's got a contract job or a part-time work or low pay, all of a sudden his desire to settle down and have a few children with, with a woman is um, drops through the floor in terms of percentages. Yeah. So it's all connected. Like the, the means to exist and survive and thrive are connected to jobs, not just any job. It's got to be a reasonably paid job and not uh, itinerant or forever on a contract. Um, so they're all connected. And um, in that last 40 years, the NCC's focused on dealing with what we'd call, you know, an ideology that is pursue profit at all costs, even if it costs Australian jobs. Yeah. And our view is, well, that's not ethical. That's not loyal to Australia. It's just not wise. Like you don't run your country that way. And there's not many countries that do. In fact, a lot of people would think the US, um, you know, the, the angels of free trade, but they're not. In fact, we are, and we're losing. Whereas America are a bit more clever in that they will uh, subsidise or protect an industry they consider super strategic and they don't want to lose it, right? Well, in Australia, we should be doing that to certain industries yeah. because without them, we lose too much. So um, look, it's all connected. Look, here's a policy, Chris, that uh, you and I would support straight away and that would be, you know, income tax rules that deal with your family as a unit. So they look at how many people depend on your income, any dependents, including a spouse and kids, and then you consider income tax. But at the moment, we're all taxed as individuals and then it's like an afterthought that, oh, that income's shared by you know, four kids and a wife yeah. or four kids and a husband. That's right, yeah, it makes, it makes a huge difference in the individual family picture. Yeah, that, uh, that would make a big difference. It would, my, my belief, we, we call it family-based taxation. Mm. And quite a few OECD countries have some form of this. And I know Senator Matt Canavan and, and others have been a proponent of it. Uh, but it would make an immediate impact, just sort of, uh, it would relax and de-stress the situation with the work-life balance between a husband and wife and yeah. dealing with uh, young kids, it's a complex, difficult time, but that's one, and, and perhaps um, assisting families directly with childcare assistance rather than directly subsidising the childcare industry itself. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of changes that could be made, and and a lot that we don't know about either. I mean, I think only last year I found out that um, it it became illegal at some point in the 70s or 80s to give um, a man, a, well, maybe not particularly a man, but to give somebody um, a raise at work because they have more children. So to say, uh, you know, I'd like some more support. Yeah, I'm doing my job well, you know, obviously given you, this is, it's a situation where you are doing your job well and you're saying, you know, well, I've, I've just had another child or I've had two children since the last time I've had a raise you know, would, would you consider giving me a raise? And that's been, you know, made illegal. Um, and I, yeah. I, that was completely mind-blowing to me to hear that. And I thought, geez, you know, the, this whole system's been rigged against family life, yet strong family life is what builds a strong economy in a strong country. So what are they trying to do here? Good point. Yeah, look, uh, and people forget that for 40 years now, we've been with a replacement, sorry, the birth rate has been below replacement. Uh, 1.7 something now. And I mean, if you do that for 40 years, like we've done, there's only one outcome of that. And that is a 
super stagnant, slightly declining population now, probably for the next at least 40 years. Because yeah. you can prop it up artificially with immigration, but it doesn't have a, doesn't solve the problem, but it does sort of artificially patch it up a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's so much more that we could talk about, Luke, but we're actually already coming towards the end of our time together. Um, but I always like to get our guests to give the men watching and listening something practical that they can do in the next week or two, whether it's, you know, reading something, posting something, learning something, uh, contacting a politician, something spiritual maybe as well. Um, what would you suggest is most important that men can do in the next couple of weeks to help build a more just society? Okay, well, I'll, I'll go right out there and say, you should uh, read our publication News Weekly. Yes, free articles, but you know, some of it is paid, been it's going for 75 odd years now, thoroughly independent, uses analysis from Catholic social teaching, mainly Australian content, which is rare. Um, yes. So use that to complement your news sources and whatnot. Um, but I would suggest reading one or two Catholic social teaching encyclicals, you know, maybe the gospel of life would be a good start. Yeah. And uh, perhaps rarum novarum, because mm. the issues there yeah. are still relevant, actually. Yeah, that, that sort of gives you the spectrum if you do those two, yeah. you know, two encyclicals there. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, slowly fill out the rest. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do things like I mentioned before, like let women in your life know that you think are relevant, that, you know, if they were to ever have an unwanted pregnancy, you'd be there to help. Maybe if there's a vulnerable elderly person, you mention to them, promise, say to them, look, I want to assist you when life's getting difficult. You know, you're a support, I'm a safe support person. You might not be able to do much, but just offer them some support. Um, but, you know, it starts with the heart and a lot of Catholic men, um, you've got a lot to offer, but perhaps like listen to God first and let him love you. And if you don't know just how much he loves you, like ask him to prove it or show it to you or something because um, that flows out into your family and your business yeah. or your workplace or your views on society. Um, we've got to keep a soft heart if you like. Hard heartedness is toxic in politics like it is in the family itself. Mm. And so keeping that childlike heart that we've got a loving father in heaven and we've got a place to go with him. And um, a lot of things on earth will tempt us to be hard-hearted but we we can't fall for that trap so um, forgive people and perhaps read one of my favorite yet to be canonized saints <laughs> that's gk chesterton if you've never read chesterton have a have a crack at it perhaps uh, the book he wrote what's wrong with the world if you're a bit interested in political concept and then i guess last of all and i, I say last sort of on purpose, I guess, and that is consider joining a political party or an association like ours that isn't a party. You know, political parties, you, um, yeah, you got to join, turn up, turn up to meetings. It can be boring, but it's important. Mm. Um, whereas groups like the National Civic Council, I guess you get to fine tune your ideas around Christian principles and policy without, you know, being hell bent on trying to win an election like yeah. in other words you're not you haven't got that filter of um, two-party partisan political fighting you can just sort of relax and ponder policy until you feel like you've grasped what the ideas are and then take that into a political party yeah so that's more than one challenge sorry Chris. There's quite a few there um, but you, you've just reminded me of a couple of things as well that i'll that i'll add to that and um, I read a speech that uh, Senator uh, Rennick gave a couple of weeks ago, and he actually goes through a little bit of the history of what um, you alluded to, Hawke and Keating, and, and what they did to the economy. Um, and I think he actually summarizes very well what he did, what they did, and how dangerous it was. Um, I'm not sure if you read that, but I read it and I was like, gee, this guy's an absolute champion. He sounds like he knows Catholic social teaching. 
He, he's a good egg. Yeah, we got the senator. I don't think I've read that piece, but I, we got the senator to speak at a conference we had in Brisbane okay. some months ago. Yeah, great. And um, his opening lines were, I fully agree with what your national president, Pat Byrne, has just said. So in other words, the National Civic Council's boss. Yeah. He, uh, he fully endorsed our understanding of the economic issues we face. So I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. Now he's he's a good egg, Senator Jared Rennick for Queensland. Yeah. Yes, yes, great. Um, and is there anything that the NCC has coming up in the next couple of months that you might like to plug at this time, Luke? There is, Chris. Yeah. Um, so we have a youth training program, which normally would be in Sydney uh, most years in person, but because of COVID, we're got the online version now it's obviously not the real thing but it's pretty good taste or teaser yep. and it's quite affordable and it's called young political advocacy training for sort of 18 to 30 year olds and um look the young team that are organizing it they've done a pretty fun job of making it engaging even though it's online mm -hmm. just go to um, ncc.org.au and just click on um the, there's a YPAT link there under formation. And uh, no, it's really good fun. So if you know, if you are a young person, or if you know a young person or you just want to support it. Yeah. It's awesome. Fantastic. And finally, Luke, would you like to say a closing prayer for all of the men watching and listening? Yeah, happy to. Thanks, Chris. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for life itself and the way you've guided and protected our lives to this point. Just thank you for all those involved in teaching and, and blessing us and encouraging us. I pray we use our time well and our gifts well and take courage. I just pray for more of the Holy Spirit to be with us to uh, go beyond ourselves and um, care for our neighbour and, and sort of see your son Jesus in our in our neighbour in a whole new way. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for the beautiful prayer, Luke, and to all the guys watching and listening. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. I'll be putting the notes of everything that we spoke about, especially with Luke's challenges and some of the resources that we mentioned. Um, I'll put all those links in our Facebook post and also on the audio version of this podcast so you can go and check that stuff out for yourselves. Um, everybody might also be interested that we are streaming up to Father's Day and a little bit afterwards uh, an eight-talk series from the Apostolates in the US called The Fathers of St. Joseph. And it's all about the spirituality and mission of fatherhood, the God-given mission of fatherhood. So if you're a dad and you want to understand a little bit more about how living as a husband and a father is a calling that God's actually given you, it's a way to become holy. Um, and if we take on our responsibilities as husbands and fathers wholeheartedly, um, we can begin to show the love of God the Father to our children the love of Jesus to our wives and and help to convert this culture and, and build a just society, right? Um, so check those things out. Thanks again, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Thanks very much. Yeah, blessing. All right. God bless. And we'll see you all next time. God bless.